Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who are actually there. Our sponsors are Hymns and Blue Apron. In the last episode, Fleet Cooper examined the rise of Sam Giacana's power over crime and his influence in politics. But was the mafia boss in any way involved in the death of President John F. Kennedy? Sam Giancana helped get JFK elected president and made a secret deal with the CIA to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro, expecting that in return, the authorities would turn a blind eye to his criminal activities. Sam Giancana was the most powerful criminal chief in the history of the United States. But Bobby Kennedy, as attorney general, made it his mission to bring down organized crime. When I first saw Sam Giancana, I thought, there is arrogance, the hatred, the violence, the viciousness that I've dedicated my career to fighting. Could Giancana, feeling betrayed by the Kennedys, have been behind the most infamous assassination in modern history? November 22, 1963. President John F. Kennedy and his wife Jacqueline arrive in Dallas, Texas. Professor Robert Blakey remembers. The object of the uh, trip was to heal a split between the liberals and the conservatives and the Republican Democratic Party in Texas. And the hope would be that this was leading or would lead to Kennedy's uh, renomination as a president. Governor and Mrs. Connolly ride in the presidential limousine. But Kennedy wouldn't live to see another election. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. President Kennedy was hit twice, first in the back and then the head. It, it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. The president's car is now going past me. Secret Service men standing up in the limousine. They are armed with submachine guns. It appears as though someone in the limousine might have been hit by the gunfire. And the first unconfirmed reports say the president was hit in the head. That's an unconfirmed report that the president was hit in the head. I myself was a young prosecutor uh, in the Department of Justice. Uh, I, I had been in the office with uh, a number of other lawyers, with uh, Robert Kennedy, the president's brother, who was attorney general. All of a sudden, uh, the news of the assassination came out. President Kennedy has been given a blood transfusion at Parkland Hospital here in Dallas in an effort to save his life after he and Governor John Conley of Texas were shot in an assassination attempt in downtown Dallas. A priest has been ordered, emergency supplies of blood also being rushed to the hospital. That somebody would shoot at an American president was outside the memory, the current memory of most people in the United States. And so this came, uh, uh, is unbelievable. Journalist John Siegenthaler had been part of JFK's election campaign and was a friend of the family. 
I was the editor of my hometown newspaper in Nashville, Tennessee, The Tennessean, and um, a representative of uh, the Associated Press came into my office with a bulletin he had torn off the wire, and it said that the president had been shot in Dallas, and I uh, immediately flared and angrily said, if this is someone's idea of a joke, it's not funny. I couldn't believe it. And the Associated Press journalist teared up and said, I wish it were a joke, John. It's not. Just a moment. Just a moment. We have a bulletin coming in. We now switch you directly to Parkland Hospital and KBOX News Director Bill Hampton. The President of the United States is dead. President Kennedy has been assassinated. It's official now. The President is dead. The shots had been fired from the Texas School Book Depository. Robert Blakey. Dallas police uh, almost immediately identified uh, that Oswald, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, worked in the depository and he had left the depository. And uh, they began an effort to find him and fairly soon somebody called in and said that they had seen him duck into uh, the Texas theater. And so they went to the Texas theater uh, and they went down the aisles and all of a sudden he stood up and made an effort to shoot one of the officers. Uh, unsuccessful. They were able to arrest him and take him back to uh, the police station for uh, interrogation. Scott Dietschy is the author of Cigar City Mafia and The Silent Dawn. They quickly put together a description of Lee Harvey Oswald as a lone nut who may have had communist sympathies and was involved in pro-Castro-Cuban operations. Within hours, Oswald had been charged with Kennedy's murder. But before he could face trial... While he was being transferred from Dallas Police Station, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot and killed by a Dallas nightclub owner by the name of Jack Ruby. Initially, Ruby said that he was doing it because it was his patriotic duty. Just a disgruntled American saddened by Kennedy's death who wanted to take revenge against the accused shooter. Five days after Oswald's murder, President Lyndon Johnson appointed a commission chaired by Chief Justice Earl Warren to investigate the assassination of President Kennedy. The Warren Commission submitted their report less than a year later. The story was that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone as a, uh, uh, of, of indefinite motive. He was a loner, it wasn't clear why he did it. But they explored all the alternatives and then as to Jack Ruby, uh, they concluded that he had no conspiratorial collect connections and that he had probably acted at a, a motive that you couldn't really determine, but he had acted alone. The Rust Report faced intense criticism. The report was built around the evidence most favorable to that conclusion, and it was coming up on the re-election of the president. And President Johnson simply did not want uh, the question of what happened to President Kennedy 
as an issue in the investigation, so he asked to have the report finished. Selwyn Rabb, author of Five Families. It was obvious to many people it had been done very flimsily. It wasn't a really solid report. There were many questions that arose later. For many, the idea that Oswald acted alone didn't ring true. Peter Vera was an attorney with the Organized Crime Strike Force. There was always a strong rumor that the mob had something to do with the assassination of, of John Kennedy. Selwyn Rabb believes that even Bobby Kennedy had the same suspicions. Some of his aides believed the way he acted after the Kennedy assassination, that he harbored a suspicion that perhaps the mafia had been involved in the death of his brother. And it's likely that one of the names at the top of Kennedy's list of suspects would have been his arch enemy, Chicago mob boss Sam Giancana, for good reason. There were numerous bugs picked up by the FBI. One of them particularly was from Sam Giancana, who said, we broke our balls trying to get him elected, and look what he does against us, that son of a bitch. So could Giancana have masterminded the plot to kill JFK? Giancana was one of the individuals under FBI surveillance at the whole time. Giancana was under such intense surveillance, carloads of FBI agents would follow right on his back bumper. Everywhere he went, they went. There was an all-out campaign against Giancana, which made him very angry. But he wasn't the only mob boss with an axe to grind over the Kennedys. There was no question about the animosity that mob dons had for John F. Kennedy and for Bobby Kennedy. In 1976, 12 years after the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee on Assassinations was formed to take another look at John F. Kennedy's murder. Professor Robert Blakey was appointed as the committee's chief legal counsel, tasked with trying to get to the truth and address the rumors of mob involvement. I thought they didn't do it. The, the, the killing of Kennedy, of course, was not with a machine gun and guys in dressed in black and well, was not a gunning down. It was a, well, obviously a high-powered rifle from a depository uh, killing Kennedy. And the person who did it uh, had no immediate mafia connections. He was an ex-Marine. But Blakey and his team soon began to spot gaping holes in the Warren Commission's report. The researchers began to read the footnotes and get into the, the evidence, it turned out that it was not as, not as hard-clad as, as it might be in a conclusion. Then all of a sudden, all sorts of doubts began being raised. And as Blakey investigated further, he began to find numerous links between the gunmen and the mafia. Lee Harvey Oswald's uncle was a mob bookmaker with connections to powerful New Orleans mafia boss Carlos Marcello. Just like Giancana, the attorney general had relentlessly hounded Marcello's operations. Kennedy even tried to have him deported. An informant claimed that shortly before JFK's assassination, Marcello had said, that little Bobby son of a bitch would be taken care of. If you want to kill a dog... You don't cut off the tail, you cut off the head. The informant even claimed that Marcello had set up a nut, some crazy guy, to take the heat. Quote, 
the way they do in Sicily. So, were Marcello's words coincidental bluster, or was Oswald the Mafia's nut? In the hours after the assassination, Oswald claimed he'd been set up. He denied any operation. He even said he was a patsy. But as the world awaited a public trial, he was taken out. To Blakey, this was a classic mafia tactic. The killing of Oswald on the way to the jail uh, by someone, that has all the earmarks of, a, of a, an assassination of the assassin. If there are no witnesses, there cannot be any testimony and there cannot be any proof uh, that there was a conspiracy. So kill the assassin and intermediate people. Uh, now, that hallmark was there. So he took a closer look into Oswald's killer, Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby. Uh, we looked into the strip bar that Jack Ruby ran, uh, and we found out that it was in a circle. In other words, the strippers were in, in a circuit that went all through the United States, and that was basically run by the mob. And this circuit of strippers was linked to the very same New Orleans mafia don Oswald's uncle worked for, Carlos Marcello. But it didn't end there. Uh, he was known to uh, the people in uh, Dallas who were, were connected uh, to widely to organized crime uh, and to uh, the mafia in, in particular. The night before the assassination, he had dinner with a man named uh, Joseph Campisi. And Campisi is the second-ranking member of the, the Dallas um, Mafia family. And if you look at Jack Ruby's phone calls in the period of time before the assassination, he has all sorts of people in the phone calls that are mob-connected. Blakey took another look at the Warren Commission's research into Jack Ruby, and he was shocked by what he found. And the Warren Commission concluded that Jack Ruby was not connected to organized crime, and the footnote goes to a man named Lenny Patrick uh, in Chicago, who's a mafia hitman. Why would you accept the testimony of a mafia hitman that Jack Ruby was not uh, connected in fact, when we looked into his background, he had been a wannabe uh, in Chicago, had apparently been a runner for Al Capone at one point, and was told by no less than, than, than Lenny Patrick to leave Chicago. Because at that time, Sam Giancana was taking over the gambling operations. And so Jack Ruby and Lenny Patrick had been friends in the in the old neighborhood, and he told him to go to Dallas. Far from having nothing to do with the mob, Jack Ruby was knee-deep in it. If you take his connections and trace them out like a concentric circle, it looks like organized crime, in some sense, were responsible. As you might remember from episode one, in the summer of 1960, Giancana was approached by the CIA to kill Castro. Giancana turned to Florida Don Santo Traficante with his Cuban connections to make it happen. Traficante, desperate to reclaim his casino empire, was only too pleased to help. 
But before they could pull it off, Kennedy sanctioned a more direct approach, sending 1,500 mercenaries financed by the CIA to invade Cuba's Bay of Pigs. But it was a disaster. Kennedy had promised air support, but at the last minute failed to send it. In just three days, the invasion was crushed, and with it, Traficante and Giancana's hopes of reviving their Cuban empire. Santo Traficante only had one culprit, and that was President Kennedy. He believed President Kennedy hadn't done enough to make the Bay of Pigs successful, and moreover, he kept blaming him whenever he spoke to people that he had never used American air power. Traficante and Giancana were now united, along with Carlos Marcelo, in a common hatred of the Kennedys and a desire for payback. As Robert Blakey's investigations continued, he increasingly believed they could have been involved in JFK's murder. I organized our investigations around the proposition that the mob didn't kill Kennedy. And I was wrong about that in terms of suspicion. They had the motive, opportunity, and means, and disgust killing him. Whether they were responsible or not, they'd got exactly what they wanted. John Siegenthaler, journalist and close friend of Bobby Kennedy, recalls. I remember uh, one of the first times I saw him in his office after uh, President Kennedy's death. Uh, he was morose. Um, he asked me uh, how I thought he was doing, and I said, you look like hell. I've read some authors who said that uh, that dark period had to do with the sense that he in some way blamed himself. I never put credence in it. I think he uh, was simply crushed uh, the loss really uh, affected him deeply. Bobby Kennedy's tragic loss was the mob's gain. My impression was that, uh, that when John Kennedy died, certainly uh, his brother's reaction to that adversely affected, for a time, everything he was about. He was uh, immobilized by his grief. Just as Carlos Marcelo had predicted, John Kennedy, the head, had been cut, and Bobby Kennedy, the tail, had stopped wagging. Attorney General Robert Kennedy will not have the power that he did. Within a year, the new president, Lyndon Johnson, had appointed a new attorney general. But Kennedy had inspired a generation of investigative lawyers who weren't about to give up the fight. David Shippers was one of them. Always there was a Sam Giancana hanging out there, the one guy that nobody seemed to be able to touch. All he had to do was surface once, and we'd be able to put him into a conspiracy of some kind. But Shippers and his colleagues had tried for years to get hard evidence against Giancana, without success. Whenever we'd sit down, we'd say, man, I wish there was some way we could get these guys. They'll never talk. You'll never get anybody inside in the Chicago outfit. They could do it in New York because there were five separate families. But in Chicago, no way could you get an agent inside. It was impossible. 
Finally, in 1964, shippers thought he might have found a way to outmaneuver the elusive mob boss. First, he set up an investigative grand jury to question Giancana. Without the grand jury, we were dead in the water. We couldn't do a thing because we had no personal subpoena power. It was a grand jury that had the subpoena power. Grand jury, it's a peculiar institution in the United States. No other uh, uh, country has such an operation. And what it is, is there's a, uh, a part of our Constitution that if a person is going to be charged with a felony, the grand jury, 23 persons, must vote on returning that felony. Now, uh, returning that charge. But it, don't, it doesn't just hear information from an agent. It has the investigative power to bring in persons who can tell them about a crime, persons who are involved in the crime. And there's no way to stop being subpoenaed. If you're subpoenaed to the grand jury, you got no choice. You got to show up. You may take the Fifth Amendment, but you're going you're to get dragged in there. Next, shippers needed to find some way to stop Giancana hiding behind the Fifth Amendment, as he'd done when questioned by Bobby Kennedy during the McClellan hearings. Will you tell us anything about any of your operations, or you just uh, giggle every time I ask you a question? Declined to answer because I honestly believe my answer might tend to incriminate me. I thought only little girls giggled, Mr. Giancana. <laughs> Giancana had asserted his right to remain silent, so as not to incriminate himself, more than 30 times. No person shall be a uh, witness against himself, okay, the Fifth Amendment. Now, if you can't be a witness against yourself, in other words, if what you're saying can never be used against you, then the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply. That's where the use of immunity came in. The plan was to grant Giancana immunity from prosecution. While it sounds like a dream come true for Giancana, in fact, it would force him to answer Shipper's questions in front of the grand jury. If he refused, he'd be in contempt of court and thrown into jail. Now, in those days, immunity was a rare, rare thing. The last time immunity had been used in the sense that we used it was back in the colonial times. Granting immunity to a top mafia boss was going to be a hard sell. The U.S. attorney looked at me and he said, Are you nuts? Are you crazy? They're going to say you're on the take, that it cost them $100,000 to get them an immunity. And then I said, I think we can do this. He says, well, what if he talks? I said, are you nuts? If he talks, we're going to have the biggest cases we've ever had. We'll break the whole stupid mafia. Finally, I convinced the uh, U.S. attorney. The next step was to win over Bobby Kennedy's successor. They set it up for us to go out and meet with the attorney general, who was Nick Katzenbach at the time. The U.S. attorney and I, only us, we walked into the attorney general's office. There were two chairs, folding chairs, one for him and one for me. And facing us was the Attorney General of the United States, the Solicitor General, the head of the Criminal, Civil, and Appellate Division. There must have been 15 people there. When we sat down, they said, well, the Attorney General only has a 10-minute window here, so you better start talking. And Hanrahan leaned over to me and he said, we're dead. And I said, well, if we're going down, Eddie, we're going to go down in flames. And we started. I started. And... Uh, they said, well, you don't really think he would talk. I said, we wouldn't immunize him if we didn't think he'd talk. If he doesn't talk, we'll put him in jail. If he does talk, we're going to have one heck of a great case. Well, by the end of that conversation, we had the permission to go. In December 1964, 
the federal grand jury investigation began. To soften Giancana up, Shipper summoned his mob associates for questioning, one by one. So what we did is we started bringing in everybody but Giancana. We had them in there every day. We have three or four witnesses. These were named guys, top guys. And what we would do, for example, we'd bring in Mr. A, who was known to be a loan shark. So the next day, the newspapers would speculate that we're going into a, uh, an investigation of loan sharking. A couple of days later, we'd bring in somebody who was a, a hitman. Oh, they're getting into murders. Every day, we had a different guy in a different area. We never mentioned Giancana to any of the people that came in. We always talked about other stuff, and they were going nuts. They couldn't figure out what we were up to. The plan was to make Giancana worry they might all be spilling their guts. And one particular person would get to Giancana more than anyone else. His lover, the famous singing star, Phyllis McGuire. Giancana was obsessed with her, and shippers believed that was a weakness he could exploit. So here comes Phyllis McGuire. We're going to put her in the grand jury. I just assumed she's going to come in and answer our questions. And the questions would essentially have been about her association, nothing embarrassing. She was the key to this whole thing. Whether Phyllis actually gave information or asserted her Fifth Amendment rights and declined to answer remains a secret. When she left the grand jury, I spoke to her and, I, and her lawyer, and I said, you know, I know that this is embarrassing for you, Ms. McGuire, and it's, uh, I want you to know that I cannot say anything Jurors can't say anything. There's not a soul can say what happened in that grand jury except you. And so you do whatever you want. We snuck her out the basement. She came back around the front and held a news conference. And in that news conference, she told the press that she had cooperated fully and answered all our questions. Well, the word came back to us that Sam Giancana was ready to kill himself because he thought, if she talked, I'm in trouble. David Shippers had scheduled Giancana to appear right after McGuire. And he made sure to ratchet up Sam's fears even further just before questioning. I went into the room where he was seated with his attorney, and I sat down and I talked to him. I said, you know, you won't be in there long, Mr. Giancana. We're going to ask you a few questions, and I, we're hoping you'll cooperate. And he's kind of laughing, you know, like, yeah, I'll cooperate. And I had a transcript of another individual's testimony in some case. It was about a half inch thick. And we had the uh, court reporter put a page on top that said, testimony of Phyllis McGuire. And I sat there and I know Sam saw it. Shippers had the Chicago boss right where he wanted him. The next step, I asked the foreman of the grand jury to order Mr. Giancana before the chief judge. And nobody knew what was going on. His lawyer had no idea. We got up before Judge Campbell, and I made a motion for grant of total immunity. And I remember the judge saying to him, Mr. Giancana, if you received a traffic ticket on the way in here today, nobody can touch you. You are immune from any prosecution for any crime as of this moment lawyer says to me, what are you going to do now, hotshot, now that he's got immunity? 
And I said, I'm going to just keep him in that grand jury, and I'm going to question him for probably three or four days. I got enough for a couple of days on just what Phyllis told us. And he, of course, told Sam that. <laughs> so when we went back in, Sam took the fifth. When the judge told him he was immune and he had to talk, he was ordered to testify. Then it hit him. It really hit him. Only then did Giancana realize he'd been outwitted. He turned to me and he said, you're one of Bobby's boys, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir, I am. He was trapped. If he talked and lied, he'd perjure himself. If he talked and told the truth, he'd be killed by the mob. Giancana refused to answer Shipper's questions, and the trap was sprung. He was in contempt of court and taken straight to jail. Sam Giancana was totally awed. He was rattled. He couldn't understand how this could happen. It had been 20 years since Giancana was last jailed. The judge told him he had the key to his own cell. He'd be released only when he decided to answer the grand jury's questions. Giancana stuck to the Mafia code of silence, known as Omerta, and kept his mouth shut. When the word went around the street that Giancana was sitting in a cell in the Cook County Jail, the information coming back to us was unbelievable. And people who were afraid to talk, were afraid to come forward, were coming forward all of a sudden. Once that lock broke, it broke all over. That rocked the whole organized crime around the country because, okay, Giancana isn't talking, but who might? From then on, they, they were running. That's when we started getting people at the mid-level to come in, I'll talk, but I need immunity. For the first time, the wall of silence that surrounded the outfit began to crumble. We used every method we could. We did it right, but we did it with imagination. And that's what they couldn't handle. I think the final demise of the mob, as far as it has demised, came out of that immunity. Giancana could only be held in jail until the grand jury folded a year later. But Shippers and his colleagues had dealt a severe blow to Giancana and the outfit. On the night Giancana was released, in May 1966, there was a party at his home in Oak Park. But senior mobsters weren't celebrating. The outfit, old guard, had had enough of Mo Giancana bringing the heat, of his high-profile lifestyle and his volatile temper. It was bad for business. Giancana was stripped of his rank as boss and thrown out of Chicago. I think he, the, the jail experience kind of like broke him. And he, he was like exposed. If, if, he, if that happened to him again, would they think he, he talked? Would they think he wasn't called back because he talked? And in Chicago, the outfit doesn't give you a trial, so you have to be above suspicion. And the best way he's, he's totally out of it is basically to retire. And he did. He had enough money, he went to Mexico. He left the U.S. and went into exile in Cuernavaca, Mexico. By the early 70s, Giancana led a largely quiet and wealthy life. But back in the States, 
Rumors of the CIA's dealings with the mob and conspiracy theories about JFK's assassination were gaining traction. And Giancana was wanted for questioning. In July 1974, Giancana was snatched from his home by Mexican immigration authorities and deported back to the United States as an undesirable. The Mexicans threw him out. It was an embarrassment to them that he was hiding and basically hiding. At the time, Chicago's strike force against organized crime was led by Peter Vera. He came back and, and uh, the Department of Justice alerted me he was coming back and they said, get this guy, so I'm on my way. I'm on my way, as soon as he comes across the border, we're gonna hit him with a grand jury subpoena. And that set the stage. Vera had a long list of questions targeting Giancana's illicit activities. Uh, I believe that someplace along the line we would have gotten to the Kennedy assassination. Uh, there was always a, a strong rumor, some felt more than others, that the mob had something to do with the assassination of, of John Kennedy. And we would have probably followed that up. I'm not probably, we would have followed it up, uh, getting some information and taking a run at that. Giancana was subpoenaed to appear before a Senate committee on illegal CIA operations on June 24, 1975. The world waited to see if the truth about the plot to kill Castro, maybe even the assassination of JFK, would come out. But Sam Giancana never made it. Giancana was cooking, it was late at night, he was cooking himself a snack in his suburban home. He admitted somebody to the house, we don't know who. Apparently he trusted them, because he turned his back to them, and they shot him in, in the back of the head. Giancana was turned over where he lay and shot a further six times. Sam Giancana, the once all-powerful mafia don, had been silenced. His death was just as controversial as his life, sparking more conspiracy theories that maybe he'd been taken out by the CIA. But Peter Vera is in no doubt. It had all the hallmarks of a mob hit. It seemed that someone inside the mob most likely someone Giancana knew and trusted, was determined to ensure his silence. But who? In 1975, following Giancana's death, an FBI bug picked up a possible clue. Florida mob boss Santo Traficante was heard telling Carlos Marcello that now there were only two people alive who knew who killed Kennedy. And, he said, they ain't talking. So, were Traficante, Marcello, and Sam Giancana behind the assassination of the century? We'll never know for sure. What is certain is that they all had a powerful motive, and the means to do it. They had seen the mob grow from small-time criminal outfits to an organization that reached right into the heart of the U.S. government. They had ruled during the heyday of the American Mafia, when gangsters like Giancana had a glamorous image and hung out with Hollywood's biggest names. But in the years that followed, the celebrities began to shun any mob connection. These men, people realized, were simply criminals and cold-hearted killers. 
Never again would a mafia boss be so closely associated with the bright stars of show business or the dark underbelly of politics. In the next episode, we'll explore the story of the man who put the organized into organized crime. Once in every generation comes along a dynamic criminal genius mind. A ruthless visionary who transformed warring street gangs into a highly sophisticated criminal empire. Lucky Luciano is a quintessential American. Using his cunning and his intelligence, rises to a position of fantastic power and wealth. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. There's no question that Luciano invented the modern mafia. This has been an Audioboom original. Thanks again to our sponsors, Hymns and Blue Apron, for their support. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.